You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing, a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts and Minds Minds Books. And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see – you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at, say, barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask, is a certain book available? Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is. Uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, And you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask, Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through booksandheartsandminds.com as well. Uh, But I really encourage you to check them out, especially if if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so I encourage you, heartsandminds.com, and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. I'll be talking today to Thabiti Anyabwile who has been a guest before, but this time we're going to be talking about uh, Black History Month. Uh, it's February, and uh, it's an important time. Uh, I became fascinated with Black History Month several years ago when I realized the number of stories about the the mass of people that I was completely unaware of, uh, that I grew up unaware, that I remained unaware uh, through much of my uh, adulthood even, and uh, became interested in the stories that had not been told uh, and now are available for us to read and, and find out uh, the, the tremendous contribution of so many uh, former slaves, descendants of slaves, uh, African-Americans in the, the 1800s and 1900s whose uh, stories and contributions weren't known. Uh, if you think of the movie Hidden Figures, uh, the central role that African-American women played in the space program at NASA for so many years and virtually untold 
uh, for all of these years until uh, a book and then a movie were made and all was revealed. And so there are so many stories like that uh, that could be told. And so uh, Black History Month is one of the ways that those stories get told. And so last year, Thabiti uh, took on a project that we'll talk a little bit about in the podcast and uh, it was really interesting. I felt it was really helpful. Uh, so we'll be talking about that uh, a little bit. And then at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how uh, critical race theory and intersectionality play into the idea of race and uh, the, the big hullabaloo around that and some aspects of evangelicalism right now. Uh, so we'll be talking a little bit about that in the uh, second part. I hope you'll stay tuned and listen to the entire podcast. My guest today is Thabiti Anyabwile, and it took me like, I don't know, like a hundred practices when I first read your name <laughs> to learn how to say it. Uh, he is a pastor at Anacostia River Church in southwest Washington, D.C., a uh, graduate of uh, North Carolina State University with a, what's your, what's your master's in? Uh, psychology. Psychology. Uh, yeah, okay. particularly community psychology. Uh, we're done here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh Council member for the Gospel Coalition, is that still accurate? It is. Okay, good. Good, because I already said it. Uh, <laughs> author of several books, including The Gospel for Muslims, which I've been reading and is good. Uh, What's a Healthy Church Member, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons, and Reviving the Black Church, which I would love to read. Uh, still Married to Christy, which is awesome. Uh, three children. So, Thabiti Anyabwile, welcome to Uncommentary. My brother, it's good to be with you, man. Thank you for having me on again. So uh, to kick off, before we get into the subject du jour, uh, I want to let you brag a little bit on how much you have enjoyed watching The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> you know, man, I, I, I'm a firm supporter in good art, bad art, uh, you know, and bad art gives you so much material, you know, to talk about. I mean, this is a, a eight-season episode, or eight-episode season, right? And they, they save all the action, really, for, like, the last episode. That is it true. It's the most boring, you know, oh, my goodness. And so you can only like it if you're nostalgic <laughs> about Star Wars. Otherwise, nothing happens on this show. <laughs> the first season had that really cool shootout uh, with that robot that ended up being reprogrammed, you know, the droid that ended up being reprogrammed. And I was like, that is really cool. It's like, you know, Clint Eastwood in the next galaxy or whatever. And then it was like, okay, well, there's those little guys with the big old giant boat, and there's those little, you know, those other guys, and now we've got this guy, and and I couldn't figure it out to like the last two episodes. It's like, okay, well, this makes a little more sense. Maybe season two will be better. I don't know. But but, but think about what it means that the most interesting character on the show is a droid, is an android. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just like this thing is dead. <laughs> Maybe they can hook him up with the Jetsons made the ne- in the next season. <laughs> Oh, there you go. <laughs> Droid tender. Uh, so um, you are my, fr- I think this is absolutely certain. You're my first returning guest uh, on Uncommentary, so I couldn't be uh, happier uh, than awesome. having you back. Um, so last year, you uh, you spent the entire year, all 365 days. Um, each day you did a, a day in black history, and uh, this will air in Black History Month, so it'll be in February of 2020. And, um, I have, uh, I've had a long interest in what I do not know about, uh, African American history. Um, like Elijah McCoy, you probably had last year. Uh, I never knew until, you know, 10, 15 years ago that the, re- the, the idea of the real McCoy came from him. 
a mm-hmm. uh, prolific inventor. Uh, so I wanted to have you back to talk about uh, Black History Month. Sometimes people call it African American History Month, but um, so I also didn't know that it started like in 1915. That's when the the idea was originally generated. So um, obviously you're African American. There's some there's some his, there's some interest that you have uh, naturally. Uh, but what got you interested in uh, Black History Month and the decision to do a year's worth of Black History on Twitter? That, that's it's probably the same answer to both of those questions. Um, you know, it's still the case that you could be African-American, Hispanic-American, Asian-American, what have you, uh, be educated in this country from elementary, middle school, high school, undergraduate, even advanced graduate degrees, and never have a, a, a class um, on the history of your own sort of ethnic people mm-hmm. in the context of America. Um, if you're white, that just can't happen. You, right. can't, you can't go through one grade right. uh, without getting, you know, history mm-hmm. told from a white American perspective. And so like a lot of African-Americans, I, I think, you know, I grew up being largely ignorant of my own history, um, being suspicious of the history I was getting for, mm-hmm. for no other reason than how much was left out of, of other people regarding other people. And uh, I, I, in high school, I had become this angry young guy and I had a, a Jewish literature teacher uh, who was trying to help me with my anger, really trying wow. to give me something productive to do with it. Um, I mostly consumed it in sports, but um, she started giving me the writings of 60s radicals. Wow. And uh, I began to get an exposure to people that I didn't know, um, Amiri Baraka, um, Malcolm X, uh, I mean, just, just lots of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would be making these references to history I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to college, my undergraduate year, my first year, uh, I spent more time in the library, in the stacks, um, in the African-American section wow. uh, of, of the library than I did maybe anywhere else on campus. Mm-hmm. My, my then girlfriend, now wife and I, um, we were just always reading and, and drinking in the history. And so it's like discovering a whole new world, um, one in which I was represented um, and, a, and a whole history of resilience and contribution and ingenuity and a history of um, that really is a gift to um, the world, mm-hmm. um, to, in which I'm going to hear about African American history, and so I, I was, as I was reading African American history, really aware that I was reading uh, American history mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that there were ways in which the story, the, the story of America, cannot be told yeah. uh, with this without the story of its its African um, descended um, members, mm-hmm. citizens, um, and so I, I decided to do that that sort of project in tweeting last year because um, we were interacting as we do sometimes online about something having to do with African-Americans and racism or something. Um, And yet again, somebody jumped into my timeline with a bunch of comments that, you know, frankly were historically um, ignorant. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that would never happen on social media. Everyone is fully informed. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. At the moment of tweeting, everybody's on business. Yeah. They're filled, uh, but maybe not informed. That's exactly right. And so I just I replied to one commenter just by saying because they were asking the question, why you know why you bring up you know African American history? It's just mm-hmm. American history. That that kind of trope, right? Yeah. 
And I just said, actually, you know, what that comment is attempting to do is erase me mm-hmm. and, and erase our history. And we just won't have it. And so I just, you know, come in and say every day um, under this hashtag on this day of black history, um, I'm going to just tweet out a factoid, mm-hmm. you know, one tweet, not a thread, just a tweet with a little bit of history. Um, and it was it was encouraging. I mean, you know, initially there were there were the handful of folks who were never satisfied if. You know, you ever mention anything factually having to do with black people, right? <laughs> there but are the, black people in America. That's not good that's enough. Right. That's exactly right. It's just like, no, why you got to call them black? Yeah. You know, <laughs> call them like, what? <laughs> you know? So, so, uh, so yeah, but, but the vast majority of people were just really encouraging mm-hmm. and, uh, and engaged with it. There were some folks who, you know, would tag onto my tweet other resources and things of that sort. As mm-hmm. an English teacher that I'd never met before, she gave me she must have given me two dozen book recommendations to wow, read with my third year old son. Yeah, as we went along, I yeah. just it was amazing. Uh, and so that's where the that experiment came from—just an appreciation for who I am and who we are as a people. That's no mistake. Um, that's part of God's providence mm-hmm. and, and definite design. Um, and history is the story of God's dealing in the world. Yeah. Uh, and as Christians, we ought to be truth people, yeah, right? We absolutely. ought to want to correct the errors in our historical understandings so that we, uh, in this case, have appreciation for people made in God's image, uh, but so that we also correct the ways in which bad history produces bad thinking and bad feeling uh, in our minds and hearts. And so um, I'd I like to think of myself as an amateur historian. I love history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a joy to do that and to sort of share that in that way. Uh, you mentioned the sixties radicals. I, uh, I don't know that James Baldwin is considered a sixties radical, but he's definitely a sixties and he's definitely pretty radical. Um, I remember the first time I ran across him and I was way into adulthood. I don't mean like in my twenties. I mean, probably in my forties at least, uh, before I knew anything about him other than just the, the fleeting of a name that I'd heard in a list of other names and, <clears throat> Uh, reading and uh, listening to or watching uh, James Baldwin is so utterly compelling in virtually everything that he says or writes. Um, It's like, I don't know how I could have gone through all my years of school, through years of college, uh, through a graduate program and not known more about him. Um, I, I didn't know anything about the, uh, the origin of the Black Panther Party, uh, the early years, what they were trying to do in Oakland, the breakfasts. I mean, everybody knew that, that you know, there was a murder involved. Everybody knew that there was some amount of violence or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I would say it was it was within five years ago that I learned uh, about their protest at the Capitol in uh, in California, and that that affects directly our firearms laws mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. and that what most concealed carry permit holders or open carry permit uh, or open carry uh, proponents uh, take for granted was secured for them by the Black Panthers. Yeah, uh, and uh, and Fred, I'm going to lose his last name here. Who was Hampton? Ki- Hampton, who was uh, murdered in Chicago, and all of these things, and then unrelated, but the the bombing in Philadelphia uh, of the, I guess it was mm. the push. Is that I can't yep. remember. Uh, so all of these things, like within the last five years, have just started to come into my awareness, and it's really frustrating as a white dude to know 
that, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to cast any aspersion or blame, you know, winners write the history and white folks in America are quote unquote, the winners. And so it's our perspective is predominant. And until I started making an attempt to reach out and learn uh, African-American folks perspectives, I was completely um, bum fuzzled by the need for a United Negro college fund when I was much younger. Mm-hmm. What, what's that mm-hmm. all about? Why do we need that? You know, there's money. Mm-hmm. Uh, or why, and I actually was one of the people who said, why isn't there a United white college fund? Yeah, I was, I mean, I was so <laughs> ignorant about things. Mm. So, um, so your perspective on this and the perspective of others about this and my own experience tells me that what you did was important and that black history month really is important, uh, that we continue it. And I think it's been since 1976 that it's been a presidential proclamation every single year that That's we would exactly observe, right. uh, black history month. This is exactly right. It became a month in 1970. Uh, I think it's students at Kent State. Oh, cool. Uh, who who sort of grew it from Negro History Week or African American History Week to a month in gotcha. 1970, and since 1976, uh, each year, yeah, presidents have, have proclaimed it. A month. Awesome. That's really cool. So, uh, as you were going through last year, uh, your dailies, uh, or even just some that you want to you you want to point out that you may not have covered last year, who who really stands out to you? Uh, as people who, as Black History Month is now upon us, like think about this person or read up on them because their influence is something that's huge that that somebody may not know about. Boy, that's too many. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I've already, I've already mentioned a couple of them for you. Well, let me let me start with Carter Woodson himself. Okay, All right. So Carter G. Woodson's the founder of what was Negro History Week, uh, now African American History Month. Uh, I think it would it would do really well to read some of his stuff or to read his his a biography on mm-hmm. him. He's born 1875. He's born to uh, his parents are former slaves in Virginia. Dad's a carpenter and a farmer. And you would think that someone like Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who's the second person, second African American to graduate with a PhD from Harvard wow. after W. B. Du Bois. Wow. You would think the way we hear those kind of credentials today that he had a silver spoon in his mouth. Mm-hmm. But actually, in terms of elementary and what we would call middle school education, his attendance at school was was uh, fleeting and periodic um, because he had to have his dad on the farm. Right. Right. So we think of public education as a public good that mm-hmm. everybody has a right to. But that's often been a sacrifice for African-Americans, even public education, wow. because it meant that it meant that dad didn't have somebody to help him on the farm. Yeah. You know, uh, so there was a there was a cost, really, mm-hmm. uh, for him to go to school. So he's largely self-taught. He moves to West Virginia with his older brother to finish um, high school at a at a school for colored or Negro children in high, uh, high school there. But for the first three years, he can't even go to high school because he's got to work in the in the coal mines of West oh, Virginia. Mercy. He he, fin- he goes to high school full time when he's 20 years old. Wow. Right? Uh, to give you a sense of that. Uh, finishes high school, goes off to college, the University of Chicago. Um, after he does uh, undergraduate work at the University of Chicago, he does his PhD in history um, at Harvard. Um, I mean, he's largely a, a self-taught, um, industrious man who is showing remarkable resilience in the face of the racism and the mm-hmm. alienation and the poverty that he's coming from. Uh, and yet, he, he attains all of this and does not become an elitist. Wow. This is part of what this is part of why I love him. Yeah, uh, doesn't become an elitist. He teaches in high school with a PhD. Eventually joins the staff at Howard University. becomes a dean of their social sciences department for many years, mm. and spends most of his career here in Washington D.C. 
but he keeps going back to Chicago, for example. And when he does, um, he doesn't stay at the fancy Negro hotel or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stays at the YMCA, wow. um, in, in the Bronzeville district in Chicago, inner city, African-American, you know, neighborhood. But that's what inspires him to tell the story of our people to, mm. to sort of set in print Negro history. Um, as a kind of counter narrative to the misrepresentations, the stereotypes, frankly, the racism and the omission that's occurring in the broader um, in the broader sort of world. Mm. And this is something that I think people should understand about African American History Month and about Carter G. Woodson and why we should read him is that history has been a battlefield um, between people groups in this country yeah. from like day one. Yeah. Right. And so when people maybe with good intention kind of show up and say, why do we need to have African-American history month? Well, it's because the, the, the folks who have largely dominated the field historically have not been committed to telling the full truth. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's because there's a narrative war um, that that is going on. Uh, and, and honestly, the sort of the soul of the country and the relationship of its citizens is at stake in that war. Yeah. And, and until and until history is done in such a way that there's sort of the full inclusion and representation of peoples gladly, willingly, joyfully mm-hmm. as a project, a project in truth telling, you'll always need African-American history. Mark. I'm talking to the BD and we're talking about uh, black history month among other things. And we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs asso- associated with scheduling. Uh, and there's not a lot more. But nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room in their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month, and you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give two fifty a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly, and these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone, and really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now, back to this week's episode. Um, Carter G. Woodson, correct? Yep. I definitely start with Carter G. Woodson. And, and I'm, I'm just giving you the briefest of sketches here. Sure. He's involved with the NAACP. He actually kind of leaves that as a young man, uh, falling out with um, Archibald Grimke, uh, brother to Francis Grimke, who's a Presbyterian pastor in D.C. for 50 years. Mm. Uh, they were related to Angelina and Sarah Grimke, um, the abolitionist sisters, oh. uh, white, white sisters from, from the South. Um, 
but they have a, they have a falling out about strategy. Mm. Uh, Woodson wanted to be much more activist, and um, Grimke, Archibald Grimke, wanted to be much more sort of gradualist. Um, and so uh, Grimke left that, and in God's providence, it's a good thing because that's when he he founds the um, association that he founded for the study of the life of uh, Negro history. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when he begins to publish the Journal of Negro History, and that's when he begins to work on um, providing for public school teachers, African American public school teachers, uh, and church Sunday school classes. Oh wow! Materials that would really sort of lead to the formation of um, African American History Week, and, so, and he put that week. Just one other sort of footnote historically, and he and he chose that weekend, that second week in February, because it fell between the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Oh, that's awesome! It gives you a sense of his heart to sort of have African American history recognized as a part mm-hmm. of American history uh, in choosing those two heroes and situating the week the way he did. So I think the average person doesn't really know what to do with Malcolm X. Um, uh, I mean, we like his name. I mean, his name is pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Martin and Malcolm rolled off, roll off the tongue really easily. So when you're thinking about uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X, pairing them up that way. And the few, and I don't know how many there are, but the few uh, video debates between them are just, uh, I mean, they're just amazing to watch these two guys go back and forth. Maybe in debates, not the right word. Maybe just conversations. Um, what is it about him besides the fact he was un- obviously his untimely death? Um, what was what distinguished him from Dr. King, and in what ways were they kind of alike? And why is he still important? Well, there's some obvious ways that distinguish a Malcolm from from Dr. King. One one would be religion, for example. So he's he's in the Nation of Islam, mm-hmm. which is a, a sort of cultic nationalist version of Islam. Uh, with a really unorthodox um, cosmology and mythology mm-hmm. uh, undergirding it. So there's there's significant religious difference. There's difference in um, rhetorical style and tone. So Malcolm is far more confrontational, yeah. far far sharper rhetorically. <laughs> um, That's he's, he's, nicely. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, it, it's true. And, and he's wittier than Dr. Yeah. King. Right. So you listen to Malcolm. Malcolm carries an audience. Right. Yeah, his with, turns of phrase are different. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah, entirely. So Dr. King's rhetoric is is filled with biblical illusion. Mm-hmm. Malcolm will use that. But his is is more often political mm-hmm. in its commentary, more often sort of folksy uh, and, and direct man on the street, urban man on the street uh, kind of commentary. And there's a kind of Ozzie Davis, when he did Malcolm's eulogy. Referred to him as our our shining knight of black masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. Black manhood. Um, so there's a sense in which Malcolm um, evokes a kind of respect because you see this uncompromising, unapologetic uh, blackness and manhood and and strength mm-hmm. uh, in Malcolm. It's a different kind of strength than you see in Dr. King, uh, whose whose ethics are, of course far more biblical, mm-hmm. uh, his emphasis on love, far more biblical, uh, who shows a, a kind of meekness uh, and strength and endurance and suffering. Mm-hmm. Malcolm was rejecting suffering right. and rejecting that kind of protest. Uh, so, so their methodologies, their methods would be different as well. Malcolm's a separatist um, in, his, in his earlier life in particular. Uh, Dr. King's a, an integrationist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their sort of visions for the future of African-American people uh, were different in that way. Malcolm would have 
struck a stronger note of self-determination. It's there in King as well. Yeah. But Malcolm would have rang that bell much louder, um, whereas Dr. King was um, really ringing the bell of, of what the, the sort of paycheck, the check that this country. Yeah, the promissory note, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and calling the country the sort of moral, sort of striking the moral conscience and calling the country to account for it. Um, another person that comes to my mind is George Washington Carver. Sure. Um, and one, and it's almost, as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking it's almost like um, it's cheating a lot of folks because he was, uh, he was so brilliant uh, and it's all about the peanuts. And, <laughs> um, and, and there's this kind of sense that, um, uh, we're going to focus on him because he was an anomaly in a sense. So he's this brilliant mm-hmm. scientist that comes up with whatever 700 uses for the peanut. Uh, I mean, if, if peanut butter is the only thing, then I hope his reward <laughs> in heaven is enormous. Uh, um, but talk a little bit about, uh, and, and of course, a lot of schools are named after him, Carver High Schools, a lot yeah, of those. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about him, but why you think um, – Maybe, and, and I don't want to undersell or undergird this anyway, but he, it almost seems like he's the easy go-to oh, sure. for, uh, like, Black History Month. George Washington Carver. So, And a lot of worthy folks get overlooked. Why, how did that develop, you think? Well, I think it's probably a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, um, and, and this is the one thing that bothered me about doing the On This Day of Black History mm-hmm. sort of tweet thing last year is I think we can take a kind of factoid approach to history, mm-hmm. right? So if somebody's the first inventor of this or the second inventor of that, that's easy to kind of remember and regurgitate, right? Um, the, the sort of stories, the longer stories and situating them in their social context and things of that sort, that's, that's a different work. That's a grittier work. That's a slower work. And it doesn't lend itself necessarily sort of quick sort of factoid stuff that you can use on a poster in Black mm-hmm. History Month. So part of it is, I think, that tendency to, to, to shrink history down to factoids in mm-hmm. that way. And, and Carver's career provides so much, you know, sort of fuel for that. Yeah. Right. And, and there are others as well. The other part of it is Carver's, Carver's not um, doesn't spend his career as um, an, an activist in the sense that, say, a Woodson would have been or Malcolm X or Martin King would have been. Uh, and and that's, that's important because I think for many of my white brothers and sisters then, that makes him more palatable. Mm-hmm. Add to that that he's obviously a Christian, right? right and yeah. then it's like, a, it's like a slam dunk. Right. I got factoids <laughs> from a guy who feels safe who's in the faith, right? That's, that's a trifecta, right? Um, so we'll go with George Washington Carver. You see, sim- I think you see the similar kind of gravitation to Booker T. Washington, for mm. example. Um, his emphasis on uh, self-reliance mm-hmm. uh, and his um, sort of choosing a strategy that's much more accommodationist with regard to the, the social mores of the time and mm-hmm. the racism of the time. Okay, that makes him a, a better candidate for sort of um, making a hero mm-hmm. in many people's mind than, say, a W.B. Du Bois, yeah. right? Is much more strident uh, in his opposition to racism and much more the, the activist, right? Um, well, it's, and, why and people, so, it's why so many people elevate Frederick Douglass without reading him. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we we've been seeing some some wild eyed misappropriation misappropriation of Frederick Douglass, um, like Dr. King now mm-hmm. that he's, he's sort of safe and sanitized. Um, and so we we've just been seeing wild eyed misappropriation to the point where if you believe some people, you know, 
the way they're using a Douglas or a King, it's like entirely oppositional to the facts right. of, of that person's life and that person's time <laughs> and, and, and whatnot. It's it's frankly it's insulting. Yeah, uh, it's it's really assault, disrespectful and insulting and uh, well. If harmful. you did this, if you did the same thing, and, and I'm not putting either of those men on par with uh, an Old Testament prophet, but it would be no different than if you took Isaiah and uh, took away all of the weird stuff or, you know, Ezekiel or whoever laying on his side and preaching for a year or half a mm-hmm. year. Uh, and mm-hmm. you just removed all that stuff to where it's just Sunday school lessons and the, the hard truths are removed. Uh, I mean, the truth is all of us are complex to some degree and all of us have failings and some of our failings are worse than others. And some of our successes are higher than others. But if someone were to write my biography and they had access to my journals and all that, which I would not recommend anybody do, but if they did, <laughs> then there's a lot of personal stuff. There's a lot of struggle that's included in those things that I haven't talked about with people. Uh, mm-hmm. And when that stuff comes out, then all of a sudden my stock in people's eyes goes, oh, man, that guy was just a weirdo. You know, he, mm-hmm. he, nobody should listen to him no matter what he did. Well, mm-hmm. we can't do that. I mean, Jesus is the only one that escapes that judgment. He's the only Amen. one. And Amen. so whether it's Douglas or Dr. King or Malcolm X, there is, there's just, just reams of good things that we can learn, even among the hard truths, the hard mm-hmm. things about their lives. And uh, it challenges me. And, and man, I mean, we all need to be challenged. Do we not? We do. We do. We do. One of the ways we need to be challenged too, brothers, not, not, not only in terms of how we read historical figures and how we judge them or, or what have you. Um, but I think we, we also need to challenge ourselves to, um, we, we've been talking here about sort of the racial dynamic, for example. Mm-hmm. We need to challenge ourselves to, to break free of some other isms, right? So thus far, everybody we've talked about has been male. Oh, right. yeah. The women are real. Hey, Sojourner <laughs> really? Truth. Sojourner Truth. I'm going to throw yeah. them in. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. She's the next one on the list, I promise. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, so in terms of you asked the question, who should people be thinking about yeah. studying and reading? Man, I want to encourage to ask some sisters, like a, a Nanny Helen Burroughs, who's um, rarely spoken about in, in sort of wider conversation. Mm-hmm. African-American history, but is a formidable um, presence in, in her generation and a lifelong educator um, committed to sort of coming out in the aftermath of. So, so one of the big themes in African-American history in the aftermath of the Civil War and, and emancipation is how are we going to reconstruct family yeah. and community? Oh, right. That's great. Had a 250 year Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. How do we put this thing back together? Right. And so there's a lot of a lot of emphasis, and energy and ink uh, sort of spent on uh, the themes of manhood and womanhood and uh, respectability, not to be confused with respectability, politics right. and, and dignity and things of that sort. Nanny Helen Burroughs and, and quite a number of other sisters are, are major voices in that and major voices in the civil rights uh, movements that sort of carry on from that point after Reconstruction mm-hmm. all the way through. Uh, the classic civil rights period, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, yeah, uh, Mississippi is another voice. Uh, Shirley Chisholm, um, just a, a lot of women should be getting much more press uh, and and being read. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know, in this period, as 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 we do the brothers as well. And and speaking of people uh, appropriated sometimes inappropriately. Uh, how many times is Harriet Tubman uh, re- referenced? Not because uh, she rescued however many slaves, not because she was viewed as the Moses of her people, but because she carried a gun. 
Right. <laughs> as if as if the focal point was that she bore arms <laughs> that's, exactly right. that's, that's exactly right we'll need see we'll need african-american history month and we'll need to keep having this um this battle about history mm. uh un- until that kind of stuff doesn't happen yeah anymore, right? yeah uh, Till people really say, no, actually, Harriet Tubman is one of the greatest American heroes Absolutely. there is. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Uh, uh, she's saving the Union. She's a Union. She's a spy. Uh, mm-hmm. She's not only a conductor on the Underground Railroad, but she's also fighting for women's mm-hmm. rights. Um, she is able to very critically say, on the one hand, hey, yeah, I'm all for women's rights. But on the other hand, some of my white sisters, y'all are breaking ranks right. you know, <laughs> in, in favor of basically racist institutions. Right. I mean – so until we can sort of valorize these folks as the best that America has had to offer, despite America's oppression and disenfranchisement of mm-hmm. them, um, till we can sort of valorize these you know, many of these folks as the people who have um, been the ones who have really spurred us on toward a more perfect union, mm-hmm. um, then then we'll just we'll need to keep having. Um, these sort of designated times of representation and remembrance and rearticulation of our history and therefore our identity um, as as American people. Is there a uh, is there a good book uh, that features these like one and two page biographies of bunches and bunches of uh, like an like a Black History Month themed book that features this kind of thing? Oh man, see, I, I I've. I've grown up from picture books, so I only read like the big biographies very slowly. Uh, so I, I wish I had at the tip of my tongue references. But yeah, I mean the short answer is yes. Okay. And, and if you just if you jump on Amazon and um, Google African American uh, history books or biographies, or search particularly children's books, uh, oh, cool. I love ch- I love children's books, uh, and some of the best sort of entry level biographies mm-hmm. are in young adult. Um, titles or in children's titles. It's really interesting. Um, and that's fun if you have children, you know, in that in those particular age right. ranges, right? Make it an introduction for yourself and your children, um, and then sort of go on from there to uh, perhaps more substantial works. That's very cool. Uh, so I want to ask you a question. Uh, there's a big thing in uh, some corners of evangelicalism right now, and it's related to race. Um, critical race theory and intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say that it's benign. Uh, some people say that it's dangerous and some people say, what the heck, you know, <laughs> every, everything's got some good and bad in it, you know, take the good and throw out the bad. Um, I know very little, uh, about either critical theory, critical legal theory, critical race. I mean, that's, that's way beyond where I've ever studied. Um, but it seems like a lot of the people who are commenting on it, it's way beyond what they've ever studied too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so what I'm, what I seem to be picking up on is people who have experience in, in those fields in academia uh, view it quite differently than people who look at it like some kind of threat to the gospel or threat to the kingdom. Uh, just speak to that a little bit. Uh, I know that you've got a, a you've got secular um, education, so you may have come across it. If you're a psychology major, you may have come across it. But I think I heard. Do, do you have a background in sociology too? No, all my degrees are in psychology. Okay. Um, so just speak a little bit to that. Uh, obviously, I haven't seen anybody saying the way you know the the way the truth and the life is critical race theory. 
Um, but there seems to be a little bit of confusion about does it have any productivity or is it profitable at all? Uh, and if so, how much and what are its limitations? Yeah. Well, I think they're probably the, the way I've watched that conversation, I think they're probably um, three or four voices or perspectives on that question. You, you named a couple of them already. Right. So there is, I think, this sort of evangelical and predominantly fundamentalist, mm-hmm. actually, um, counter reaction, negative reaction that wants to reject those terms and their underlying ideas wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the strongest way that evangelicals and fundamentalists know uh, to denounce something is to say it's contrary to the gospel yeah. and contrary to uh, Christianity. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's one view. Then you have a kind of academic view uh, where folks are, are working in it um, the way folks would work in, in any other kind of technical field. Uh, and what I've sort of observed in the last couple of years is that the, the language, the, the meanings, the ideas, the intents of those two groups could not be further apart. Yeah. Right. Th- those, those groups aren't actually talking with each other mm-hmm. and interacting with each other. And, and when they do, it seems to me that the folks who are in the field academically defining the field and so on are saying to evangelical and fundamentalist critics, you don't even actually look like you know what you're reading. Right. right? <laughs> um, so I, I think the best example of that for me was um, Neil Shinvey's interactions with Brad Mason, mm-hmm. where Mason was asking some folks who are in the field that Shinvey purports to be summarizing, is this accurate and so on. Um, of all the stuff that's said in there, one thing I think easy, anybody should walk away with is, oh, it doesn't look like the folks in the field feel re- represented by mm-hmm. Shinvey, mm-hmm. right? So, so those are two of the groups. Now, now, there are two other groups between those polls, I think. Um, and there are folks who are um, sort of self-consciously uh, enamored with critical race theory and, and enamored with critical theory and, and all the things that go with it who are adopting it. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are a lot of people in that category. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some people who are picking up some things are picking up some things uh, unsuspectingly. And so when, when the evangelical critics say that, I don't think they're altogether wrong. I think they have simply massively overblown it into this um, boogeyman mm-hmm. that isn't really there. All right. Uh, but I could name on one hand a couple of folks that I think have have gone too far in their imbibing of um, those perspectives mm-hmm. uncritically mm-hmm. Uh, with regard to a, a biblical um, evaluation. But here's where I think 85 percent of people are. This is anecdotal. Uh, But if I had to put 85, 90 percent of people into a category, it would simply be this, brother. Um, It would be largely Mm -hmm. African-American and a a number of of white brothers and sisters who are Mm well-read, actually, um, who read um, some works by folks who might be associated with critical race theory or might be associated with anti-racism, might be associated with, you know, some other kinds of fields and so on. And they say this. That makes sense of my experience. Mm. You just gave me a word to describe the many things I've been feeling. Yeah. Right. So take intersectionality. All intersectionality is is a is a term used to say that our existence is more complex than just one aspect of our identity. Yeah. So if I am African American, that puts me in a particular social location in this country. That that's indisputable. Mm-hmm. If I'm an African American female, 
Well, that gets more complex yeah. because not only do I deal with the world as an African-American, but I also deal with the world as a woman and not only just as a woman, but as an African-American woman, which is a distinct experience from a, say, white woman or an right. Asian woman, right? And if I'm poor, oh, by the way, yeah. <laughs> that's another level of complexity as well. <laughs> so I think that these are terms that are sometimes terms of art and technical terms, but they're really simply describing what is yeah. uh, in, in a language other than biblical language. The frustration, a, yeah, the frustration that I have found, especially on that point, is the characterization that people are defining different levels of their victimhood. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, so the 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 poor black woman that you just mentioned, well, she's claiming three levels of victimhood. And she wants, you know, she expects all of her oppressors then to be condemned because she's playing her victimhood is more important than, say, her identity in Christ. And I just like I just that seems like such a leap to me in what it means first to interpret to interpret the scriptures. And second, what it means just to interpret the world. I mean, for the love, Paul even talked about his own uh, uh, both religious and cultural upbringing uh, yep. in separate categories and distinctions. The scripture uses separate categories and descriptions yep. in, um, in analyzing or talking about how different people experience things. Jew and Gentile itself uh, are characters or their categories that Jesus used that Paul yep. used. I, I mean, I just, it, it's, it's really frustrating at times. Well, uh, don't forget the category of oppressor and oppressed in the scriptures. Absolutely, absolutely. So, see, I think this this reaction to um, those sets of terms, and 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 you're right, this caricature mm. of these are folks who are amassing victim categories in order to get something that they don't deserve. Yeah. I think it's just really a, a a thin veil over a a sort of reflexive um, selfishness. Mm-hmm. And I say that because uh, these are folks who will go on to argue that there's no redress to be made um, for for these wrongs yeah. that, that people may be claiming. Um, and I think it's a I think it's a veil, a kind of self-protectiveness against what feels like implication. Right. And responsibility. Mm-hmm. We, we don't want to have any sort of responsibility to engage these things, but to go on in the status quo. And and it, what's ironic to me is these folks believe in intersectionality because if you listen to many of their speeches criticizing it and rejecting it, they use it to describe themselves. <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I'm a white cisgendered <laughs> male. Da da da. I'm the bad guy. It's like wait a minute. Now you go you go use <laughs> you go use it to make yourself a victim while actually you know excoriating the yeah. folks who you claim to have a victim mentality. Yeah. It's like oh my goodness, what are we doing right now? So. <laughs> But but honestly, I, I think what I would just want people to understand is there's a simple way through much of this, and that is to ask questions and listen. Yeah. So if somebody uses the the the, the word intersectionality, the simplest thing to do is just say, "Hey, brother, sister, what do you mean by that?" There's a lot of confusion out there. A lot of people saying a lot of different things. I what do you mean? So you and I can have a conversation about meaning, um, and to take people at their word. Uh, and to engage people and to to understand to seek to understand uh, as well as to be understood. And so I, for my part, I think that conversation has gotten so dysfunctional mm-hmm. in evangelical and fundamentalist circles and so conspiracy theory oriented yeah. um, that it's hard for me to imagine there's going to be much that's helpful or hopeful 
that comes from it at this point. This is Marty Duran. I've been talking to Thabiti and Yabwile uh, on Uncommentary. Uh, you're on Twitter, and it's Thabiti. I mean, it's basically your name until you run out of letters on the handle. That's right. So, so you got to drop the E. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And he's pretty prolific, and he likes to talk. He likes to tweet about sports and some cultural stuff too. Yeah, follow me on Twitter if you want to. At your own peril. That's right. Uh, <laughs> at your own peril. But we'll talk about a little bit of everything: food, sports, all of it. That's awesome. All right. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you'll uh, come back next time. Thank you for having me, brother. I always, always love hearing from you. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcasts.